0: This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Ashley Elfervik from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. To set our place in time, we are recording amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Like so many others in our world today, we are working from home to practice safe social distancing. We are lacking our usual equipment, so we apologize for any poor audio quality in our episode today. In this episode, I speak with Julie Freshman, the author of Equine Law and Horse Sense. Julie helps people who love horses deal with the particular joys and challenges that come with equine businesses. She is one of the nation's best known lawyers serving the many facets of the horse industry. Today, she'll introduce us to the world of horse sense and the liabilities of pony rides. Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Hello there. Thanks for having me.
0: So first, for those of us who may not be horse people, can you define the term horse sense?
1: Well, hard to define. I think the point is that a lot of the law for many people is, frankly, very good common sense. One quick example that is in the book is land use and having horses in an ever-increasing urbanized world. Sure, there are laws, there are ordinances, but sometimes it comes down to good common sense, good citizenship. So the point of the book is to help educate people on the law, but wherever possible, mention common sense ideas for people to work with the law to avoid dispute.
0: Great. Obviously, it helps for lawyers to have common sense, but also if they know a little bit about horses. How can lawyers and clients benefit when some equine-savvy attorneys blend their personal passion and their law practice?
1: Well, in that setting, I think it helps, Uh, although I'm not always convinced that having a lawyer who is calling himself or herself an equine lawyer is the best. Frankly, in today's world, people want to save money. They're looking for efficiency. Not everybody has, just like a major corporation, a huge budget to spend. I find that having a lawyer who understands the industry, understands the terminology, and has a unique interest in the issues can result in cheaper legal fees. Because you don't have to, as a client, educate the lawyer on what it means, for example, to have a registered paint horse. The lawyer may understand that. The lawyer will also, you would think, have a familiarity with Some of the basic issues, which would cut down on the time. Uh, Several years ago, somebody was willing to hire me, believe it or not, to help teach their lawyer about the differentiating factors between a Pinto and an Appaloosa. I don't think they needed a lawyer for that, but I had to get on the phone for just a few minutes. I I think I ended up waiving the fee to tell the lawyer, yes, they both have spots, but both have different registries and different uh, backgrounds. It's not common for a lawyer to have to engage in that kind of a discussion with a client, but an equine lawyer at least will know the difference.
0: Wow, very interesting. And yeah, I guess uh, to someone who's uninitiated, those would seem uh, like small differences, but so important if you're in that community. True. True. So you say in the book that common horse transactions too often retain the character of an 1800s handshake deal. Why is it sometimes more difficult for the equine community to get on board with contracts?
1: Sometimes I've wondered if that reticence, that lack of interest in using the written contract is unique to the horse industry. I suspect it's not But I think there's a lot of trust built into the horse industry. I think nowadays the industry is shrinking a bit. And I believe the sense is that some have that people who are willing to own horses, they enjoy horses, share a passion for horses, must be trustworthy enough that they don't need a written agreement, which continues to baffle me when I hear about people who call looking for legal help because they sold a horse on an installment payment arrangement to a total stranger several states over and, of course, hasn't been paid. But that trust and that interest in people who share the passion has been going on for a long time. That's another reason why I've been involved in writing a lot and speaking a lot on equine law, just to encourage people that using the written agreement, putting the understanding on paper is a way of saving legal fees and saving expense.
0: Like you said, there's so many intricacies and things that come through equine law and things that don't. And a lot of times people will seek to apply the rules of an equine association maybe to more legal areas. So where are those kind of boundaries between an equine association and the rule of law?
1: Clearly organizations have and should have rules governing membership and so that the playing field is even for everyone also uh, understandings should exist about meetings open meetings whether they should be or shouldn't be open uh, and also what to do with expulsions and discipline that nowadays is uh, an issue that some associations are dealing with particularly those that are governed by outside rules you know such as safe sport which is impacting organizations such as the US equestrian federation its members are subject to it it's an FEI Federation Equestrian International group but overall, the rule of law applies uh, just about every. <laughs> I can't think of anywhere it wouldn't. Uh, meaning that there is a mechanism within the legal system for those who have disputes with organizations. The recourse options are there. However, the recourse options are limited. Let me explain a bit as to what I'm talking about. An issue that's been existing for many, many years is expulsion from an association for violation of rules or you know, some internal mechanism that has an issue that forces the member to be removed. Before the removal is done, typically there will be a hearing conducted through the organization in some fashion, unless the bylaws make the expulsion automatic, perhaps nonpayment of dues or fees. But if it is because of violation of a rule, for example, medicating a horse beyond appropriate levels, There will be a hearing, and if a person is unhappy with the results of the hearing, sure, there's a mechanism for recourse through the legal system. But what I meant to say and what I was referring to is the courts don't like to be a glorified association member uh, or body member. So the recourse options when a person isn't happy with uh, an association as to expulsion are that a court will step in if they believe that the association acted in a manner that was arbitrary or capricious. That's a pretty tough standard to meet. And sure, there have been rulings that exist in a number of associations where a person has met that very high threshold. But for the most part, the decisions are that uh, the decision of the association hasn't met that, and the courts will defer. This is an issue that continues to plague groups, and I'm sure it will continue for
0: quite a while. So one thing that your book helps clarify in terms of laws is that there's different state laws regarding equine liability, and your your book has a helpful section kind of clarifying the different laws in each state. What are these laws exactly, and who do they protect? Sure. 48 states currently have some form of what we
1: call an equine activity liability law. Some states have amended the laws to become what are called farm animal activity liability laws. These laws started back in the very late 80s, 1989, I believe, was the first one, with the interest of restricting or controlling liabilities where horses were involved. The point of these laws was to remove the common law negligence standard because of the fact that, as we know, an argument can be made that anything is considered negligent, unreasonable, but to change the common law to limited types of things. Let me give you the basic Uh, setting that is the formula for many of these laws. Sure, many states differ. But the formula of the laws and the common, uh, I guess, pattern of these laws is if a participant, and this is the person who would be restricted from suing, but if a person qualifies as a participant in an equine activity, and the laws define participant, they define equine activity, they even define equine to include horses, mules, donkeys, and other types of animals. But if a person is engaged in an equine activity and is injured from an inherent risk of an equine activity, an inherent risk is somewhat broad in the state definitions. Inherent risk can be uh, as broad as The propensity for an equine to behave in ways that may result in injury, death, or damage to people on or around them. The unpredictability of an equine to sights, sounds, sudden movements, you get the idea. But if the participant is engaged in an equine activity and is injured from an inherent risk of an equine activity, the laws then go on to say in most of the states, recourse is restricted to only certain things. I'll share them very briefly. But nationwide, with all of the laws, the exceptions, the things that people may have recourse for, come down to six things. The first would be faulty tack or equipment that the provider of the equine activity gave. Uh, And if a person is injured from that, well, they may have recourse. The second is dangerous latent condition of the land for which no conspicuous warning sign is posted. The third is when somebody, the provider, be it a professional, sponsor, or anyone, provides an equine but fails to make reasonable and prudent efforts to determine the ability of the participant to engage safely in the equine activity. Other exceptions go on to include intentional wrongdoing. Some also have willful and wanton misconduct. And a very small number of states still allow liability for negligence. I view that as an odd inclusion. I don't really see why negligence would be part of these laws. But there are reasons for it, and a small number of the laws allow recourse for common law negligence. So these are the exceptions, but one quick thing before I conclude and go back to you. In most of the states, of the 48 that is, with these laws, there is a requirement that usually the professionals who provide horse activities must post conspicuous warning signs on the premises And the laws go into detail about the kind of language to use, the size of the signs, color of the letters, size of the letters. One other thing, in many of these states, if the professional or sponsor, sometimes others, use contracts, the laws go on to state that the contracts require certain language. Often it's the same as the sign, and sometimes it's a list of inherent risks. In a couple of states, it's both. So this is what the laws do, and the purported benefit is to restrict liability, to limit lawsuits, and as you can imagine, lots of these things that you've just heard have subjected themselves to lawsuits. And so the people who could be affected would be those who, are, who would qualify as participants in an equine activity.
0: Great. One of my questions from that is, California and Maryland are the only two states without these types of laws. Why is that?
1: Well, there might be a backstory. I'm told that in California, bills have been proposed. I don't know how far they've gotten. But as I've often said, people who live or do business in California, if they're concerned about liability protection, don't have such a bad state of the law because assumption of risk has been recognized in numerous court rulings. And as I've put it, uh, assumption of risk is robust in California. For those who are horse owners and horse business owners, That doesn't necessarily mean that any lawsuit would be dismissed instantly, but it does mean that if you have a participant, guest, friend, customer who is using one of your horses near one of your horses and they're aware of the activity and the risks that it involves, well, there's a better chance that you may end up succeeding if you are the one targeted with a lawsuit. So California is not a terrible state. In regard to enforcement of waivers and releases, California is not terrible either. There was a case in 2015 where a minor and her mother signed a waiver. The minor died in an activity. The waiver was upheld. And that's unique because states around the country don't tend to like parental waivers. Maryland, I'm told that Maryland doesn't want an equine liability law. That is to say many in the industry, because many of them believe that the law in Maryland as to contributory negligence is extremely strong. And what I'm told is, and I haven't looked at the law to confirm. But I'm told that in Maryland, if you are targeted with a lawsuit and you can prove that the plaintiff is 1% or more negligent, and I was literally given that number, then he or she will be able to recover nothing. And people in the state of Maryland, including in major organizations who are involved with horses, believe that it's because of that state of the law that there's a deterrent already built in to litigation and they're happy with it. So I've been told for years that we shouldn't expect to see an equine liability law in Maryland.
0: Very interesting. We'll return to our conversation with Julie Fershman in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to my conversation with Julie Frischman, equine law attorney and author of the book, Equine Law and Horse Sense you talk a lot about, you know, the participants and knowing the dangers involved. So pony rides seem ubiquitous to children's birthday parties, but combining such powerful animals with rambunctious children um, can be dangerous. So with things like that, what are the types of risks involved and what can people do to mitigate those risks?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, Let's stick with the pony ride example that you provided. And I do have some clients who provide pony rides. And let's face it, pony rides serve an important part of the horse industry. It's what draws people in as children when they have those early interactions with horses. In fact, that's what got me involved with horses as a kid who did pony rides, that is a rider back then. So what can providers do and what examples can I impart? Well, one is to do the best to control the environment. I've worked on a few claims over the years where children got away from their parents, got close to the ponies, one kid got kicked in the head. And it was only because the kid wandered, maybe crawled over where the ponies were. And that creates a huge problem. Let's not talk about liability. Let's just talk about management of the risk. What I've often told pony ride providers to consider is encouraging, if not requiring, that children be kept by their parents or by guardians at all times so that they don't wander over to the ponies. And the access to the ponies is limited. Other suggestions, and everybody can do what they think is right, is have one of those removable plastic fences as a way of showing people, whether it's a rope or or truly like a gardening fence, to show people where the uh, line should be drawn to keep children back. I've strongly recommended, but it's usually not a problem for pony providers, that the ponies that are out there be conditioned to see just about and hear just about everything. Because at a birthday party, as you can imagine, parents will have balloons, including those shiny Mylar balloons that might reflect the sun. Things like that could scare the average animal. These ponies should be used to it. The pony ride providers I've represented have ponies that have handled just about everything. Sounds, screams, music. You can imagine even GoPros or uh, drones, more specifically that are flying around. These ponies have seen it all. So they're pretty quiet. It's that type of training and conditioning that makes all the difference.
0: Wow. Yeah. And you don't think about things like drones and, you know, the impact that might have on a horse and someone trying to record the party. That's certainly a kind of modern technology interfering with kind of a classic pastime. True. So One of the other things you talk about in the book is how first-time horse buyers can often fall into more legal traps because they're not familiar with the intricacies of the horse world. What can someone interested in buying their first horse do to educate themselves before they start their search? That's a, a
1: great question. And it's unfortunate that the horse industry is shrinking. And I think even more unfortunate that Truly, I think some people in the industry have contributed to it by not being forthright with potential buyers. So what I've recommended to buyers to look out for themselves in the transaction is uh, a number of things. Uh, One is, of course, and it may not be in my book, but please don't fall in love with an animal just because it has a nice picture or video online. Due diligence, as we all know, can make all the difference. So how do I often offer suggestions to potential buyers? Uh, Well, one is See the horse, of course. Get somebody out if you can't to see the horse, but then kick it up a notch. When that appointment is made to come out and look at a horse, chances are, no matter who the seller is, that the horse will be uh, groomed, ready to go. But for the unscrupulous seller, the horse may be medicated Uh, may be conditioned and prepared for hours that day so that a normally unruly and and pretty crazy horse is acting beautifully. Well, what they don't know, uh, what the prospective buyer that is doesn't know, is that the animal has been ridden and worked for hours just to calm it down. So I recommend when I said kick it up a notch to certainly show up for the appointment, but if possible, show up early. Or offer uh, an opportunity to see the horse at different times of the day when there may not have been that opportunity To uh, have for the seller to have the horse prepared. By that, what I mean is to have an understanding, so there's no trespassing. That whoever the buyer is or the buyer's agent is can stop by just about any time within a certain window to to watch the horse in the stall. Sometimes horses don't like people around, and you're going to see a pinned back set of ears, terrible expression, maybe a turned rump as if to say "get away." The first-time buyer may not want a horse with that kind of disposition but the first-time buyer wouldn't see it unless they asked for access. Or they want to see how the horse behaves when handled by people in the normal course of things, in and out of the stall, around. They may want to watch, that is, the buyer may want to watch how the horse behaves when being saddled and bridled. Uh, It may be that the horse shows some pretty nasty behaviors, and the buyer may not want that. So access and permission to see the horse for a certain window of time I think would be a great thing, and you learn more about the horse that way. Other examples for the buyer who's truly new, hire a professional, and that means to get an opinion from somebody who is respected in the industry, pay him or her for her time or his time to come out and see the horse, even watch the prospective buyer ride and handle the horse and offer a good opinion as to whether they're well-matched. And finally, of course, a pre-purchase examination by an independent veterinarian I think is critical combined with a toxicology screen drawing blood on that day to make sure that the horse is uh, maybe testing fine on the tests that vets do when they check out the horse. People in the industry know about flexion tests as one of them, but everything should match up uh, from the toxicology front. These are some examples. And of course, being a lawyer, I guess I need to add in a contract, (laughs) a a written contract that explains all of the assumptions that the buyer has. That is to say, if the seller is promising verbally, that the horse has never been ill, lame over a very extended period of time, well, then that seller should be able to put it in writing if the buyer wants. All of this, I think, are um, helpful tips for uh,
0: prospective buyers. Wonderful. Thank you. And yeah, definitely a lot to think about.
1: Well, the point of the book is to help make people aware about the issues involving horse ownership. But it was written for lawyers and non-lawyers Lawyers might benefit from the cases and the statutory sites that I put in. Non-lawyers these days might benefit too, because whatever I cite, you can probably find online, which includes the case, the statute, all of this is available. And with information, I'm hoping uh, will mean fewer or maybe no disputes and uh, a happier industry.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And um, where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work?
1: Probably the easiest way is a website called equine law, all one word, equinelaw.net, that offers a little bit about uh, the practice and a little more information or links, rather, to information on the book.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And um, one last question here Um, Is it equine or equine? I've been saying equine. It sounds like it's to be equine. Either way
1: works. If you talk to people in the industry, they'll use either pronunciation.
0: Okay, well good to know because I'm about to repeat the title of your book for everyone who wants to buy it. So I want to make sure uh, you know I have the intricacies correct. Listeners, you can purchase equine law and horse sense at the ABA web store. Go to ambar.org slash equine law. That's amb.org slash equine law. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.